Welcome to the Aboisi Wine Buzz podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Clinton Lee. Welcome to another episode of the Aboisi Wine Buzz. My next guest is a very accomplished and polished individual in every sense. His career and skills include that of being a journalist, broadcaster, photographer, writer, author of many outstanding wine books. He is acknowledged by his peers in both the writing and wine industry for his remarkable work and extraordinary list of accolades. His recent book, Drinking with the Valkyrie, Writings on Wine, showcase his shorter essays over the last 20 years that were previously published in wine magazines like Decanter and The World of Fine Wine. It gives me immense pleasure to have on our show, Andrew Jefford. Thank you very much for being on our show, Andrew. My pleasure, Clinton. Great to be with you. When I think of the Valkyrie, my immediate reaction is of the German composer Wagner, who wrote Ride of the Valkyrie in 1851, and images of Robert Duval from the 1979 Apocalypse Now in the beach scene. You know, the title of your latest book is called Drinking with the Valkyrie, Writings on Wine, an unusual title. Could you share with us how you, that title came about and why it was chosen? Sure, sure. Well, the book is a collection of different pieces. So that is the title of one of the pieces in the book. Uh, and uh, the things you're alluding to are, are spot on, absolutely right. That's uh, exactly what I wanted to evoke in that particular piece. Um, the Valkyries were, were choosers of the slain. So if you were a soldier, a Norse soldier, the last person you wanted to see swinging around the corner was a Valkyrie because it meant your number was up. So it's a serious, a serious encounter. And uh, this particular piece is all about drinking vintage port. Now, vintage port is mostly drunk and we're urged to drink it after 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, something like that. But what I'm saying is drink it young. You can save it for 15 or 25 years if you want, but don't forget also to drink it young because to me, that is one of the most exciting experiences that any wine drinker can have. Uh, young Vintage Port is the most astonishing, head-turning, body-rolling, bruising all over wine you can ever wrestle <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, get stuck into. And it really is like uh, drinking with the Valkyries. It's a very, very dramatic experience and it's an ex there's nothing else like it. Uh, it's, I think really it's essential to fully appreciate that wine is to see it in its youth, to drink it in its youth, to meet it in its youth. So, so that's why I chose that rather um, catchy title, let's say, for that particular piece. And then when it came to choosing uh, a single title for the whole collection, uh, that was the one that the publishers uh, wanted to seize on. So uh, we, we tussled over that a bit because I quite wanted to call it Wine is Also a Dream, which mm -hmm. is the title of another of the pieces in the book. But in the end, uh, they won me over and drinking with the Valkyries it is. Well, I uh, certainly does evoke um, very graphic images, and uh, I agree with you. Um, I've on occasion had uh, 
vintage port uh, when it should have been uh, perhaps, as you said, most people wait for 15 to 20 years. And when you drink it at a very young age, um, it evokes different and stirs uh, contrasting uh, emotions on the palate and certainly makes you think, what would it have been like? What is it now? So yes, it's, uh, it's remarkable when, when you drink it very, very young. Andrew, share with us the motivation to write your latest book. Well, you know, I've written an awful lot of journalism down the years. Uh -huh. um, and, and from time to time, I have thought, you know, it'd be nice to, to see that in the covers of a, of a, of a book, uh -huh. to, to make it a little bit more permanent than it will ever be as a piece of journalism. Um, but it was a sort of a back project on the back burner, something I thought about from time to time. I mentioned to one or two people. Um, I didn't really think anything would come of it, but but eventually, uh, Academy du Vin uh, books said they would like to have a go with it, uh, and uh, so that was great. So it gave me a chance to to put this collection together, um, pieces I've written over the last uh, fifteen or so years, um, and and you know when we put them all together, I realised actually that most of what I have to say about wine is, is hidden away in this book somewhere or, or other. Uh, so I'm, I'm very glad in the end to have, to have got it all together. Um, and it's also very different from the other things I've written, particularly the New France, all about France, and Whiskey Island, all about the island of Isla, the Whiskey Island of Isla, uh, and other books too. Uh, this, this has a much broader focus in many ways, uh, and obviously it can treat, you know, a huge variety of different subjects within the wine field. So it was great fun to put together and um, I hope it works as a collection. Well, I, I've had the, um, the privilege of, of reading through uh, a number of the articles in the, in the, in the book itself. And uh, the theme that I thought that was running through it, it's very thought provoking. Yes, very thought provoking. It 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 stirs the uh, stirs the mind, um, acts as a catalyst, and I'm sure many of the articles were written quite a number of years ago, but yet they still remain quite relevant to today. In fact, even more so in certain cases. So, um, and I'll and yeah. I'll touch back on that uh, later on. So, mm. Andrew, what would you like the reader to remember? after reading this fine literary piece of work from you? Well, I think the three things, I, the three messages, if you want, I would like to get yeah. across. One is something I think you want to talk about a bit later, Clinton, which is the whole horizontal versus vertical mm -hmm. uh, approach to wine. And my contention is that um, the wine world at the moment is, is structured very much on verticality. Uh, and to me, the beauty and the joy of wine is connected with horizontality. So perhaps we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in this interview. Uh, I also mentioned wine is also a dream, that, that particular piece. Um, you know, my contention in that piece is that everything that lies behind wine is in fact extraordinarily important to our enjoyment of it. If wine simply came in unmarked medical files, P-H-I-A-L-S, uh, little medicine bottles, if you like, 
and, and they were all numbered from one to sort of 10,000 and we tried, tried them on that basis. They'd be the same wines, but we wouldn't enjoy it at all because it wouldn't have any of the, the dream apparatus, if you like, that lies behind every wine that goes right back to, to our distant forebears. The first piece in the book actually is based on the work of Patrick McGovern talking mm -hmm. about wine in, and alcohols in prehistory. But anybody who knows uh, Greek literature, for example, will know Homer's Odyssey, a book absolutely packed with, with wine references. Yeah. That was written 7th to 8th, uh, 8th to 7th centuries BC. Euripides the Bacchae, thought to be one, you know, perhaps the greatest of all Greek tragedies, written 400 years of BC. Anybody who, who has any contact with the Christian world or who is a Christian will fully understand the significance of wine uh, in Christian tradition, in the New Testament, or the Christian Eucharist, and so on. And all of these things quietly, not yes. prominently, but quietly lie behind the way we, we taste wine and drink wine and enjoy wine. And, and they're why the very word wine has the sort of the grand, uh, the grand rolling uh, significance that it does for all of us. So I think that, that wine is also a dream is also quite an important piece. And that's something I would very much like people to remember. And then I think the final thing I would like people to remember is that really wine is, is very much bonded in the rest of our life. I would like people to see wine under the broadest eaves, the biggest perspectives. Um, you know, again, we might talk a little bit about wine and climate change later on. That to me is very important. Uh, wine in our contemporary world, but its origin in different countries and different mm -hmm. cultures is incredibly important too. The things that it can teach us about otherness and difference are, are wonderful lessons for human beings to take on board. So all of that bigger stuff, which is not something we often have a, much of a chance to talk about in the wine world, because we're very wrapped up in the, the practicalities and, and, uh, and the details of it all and, and the simple pleasure of it all. And that's wonderful. But there is also these, these much bigger perspectives behind. So that's also something I want to open up people's uh, people's minds to uh, with, with this book. Well, you, you, you've touched my heart when you mentioned the word culture, because that's very dear to, to me. And uh, you're right. I mean, I, I think there is a particular whiskey club where the whiskies that come out are literally only numbered. There, there's nothing else to it. And uh, mm. it comes across as very sterile and very clinical. And you, you tend to lose the historical significance and not only that, the, the wonderful story behind. So um, yeah, we, we, we definitely will touch on the horizontal and the uh, vertical aspects which you mentioned. Now, mm. you've been described as an iconoclast in the world of wine writing, you know, by Jay McInerney, who wrote, he's skeptical of the 100-point system do you think this label of being an iconoclast is a fair characterization of you? Well, I wouldn't like to be described as an iconoclast for the simple reason that the meaning of words matters a lot to me. And the meaning of iconoclast is somebody who smashes icons. And icons are very, very precious uh, things within the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox yes. Church, for example. They're, yes. they're things that uh, are, are of great beauty. Uh, and great veneration and great spiritual significance. So I would hate to be thought uh, uh, about uh, somebody who 
came to objects like that and smashed them up. We'll let so, no. they know about that. <laughs> yes, but, but I'm quite happy to be described as a dissident, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm also quite happy to be described as a revisionist. Um, one of the pieces, oddly enough, about Picpoul de Pinay begins with a discussion of uh, revisionism, slightly self-indulgent perhaps, but, but I, I am quite happy to be described in, in either of those ways, because I do think it's very important that, that with any culture, if we're going to, to keep it alive and keep it meaningful and understand it properly, we need to keep thinking about all of our terms uh, the, the whole time and the way we, we consider and, and uh, how much we should accept without question. And I think the questioning posture, the, the dissident posture, the revisionist posture is actually quite a useful one to have. Uh, and it, it's what drives a lot of the pieces in the book, it's true. I, I think we, we all go through that particular uh, stage in our lives when we are thoughtful of how we're going to change the world, certainly in our university days. And uh, as, we, as we move on in life, you know, we become more um, uh, particular and pragmatic. So I, um, I certainly understand where you're, where you're coming from, Andrew. Now, talking about time and generation, the wine industry today, as in other industries, are now having a larger and ever-growing following in terms of market uh, share with a younger generational drinker, in our case. Their wine evaluation differs from previous generations. Uh, what are your thoughts on the 100-point system today and <laughs> your suggestions for change? Right. Um, okay. Well, the first thing to say is I can make any suggestion for change you like and it won't happen. Uh, I think the 100-point scale is, is here to stay. It's just it's too easy for people and it's too popular. And to be fair, there are times when it's quite useful. For example, it's a sort of shorthand for enthusiasm. You can, you can say nice things about three or four wines. Uh, and if you just read the words, they all sound fairly similar. And if you give them 94, 93, 92, 91, you can actually see which, which you put in your order of preference. So that's fine. Uh, but philosophically uh, and also practically, I think there are immense problems with taking scoring too seriously. That's really my, the bone I want to pick with, with scores. Uh, I think they've become far too significant uh, in the wine world. Uh, I think they're actually based um, on a sort of lie, which is that uh, excellence matters more than difference. I don't think that's true at all. And in any case, uh, excellence is always subjective and Absolutely. it's always ephemeral. Uh -huh. uh, and it simply doesn't match up to the reality of, of most people's drinking habits. I mean, yeah. I know, to be honest, uh, when I approach different wines at different times, I feel differently about them. Uh, but, but, you know, the score doesn't allow that. Um, the score pinions a wine to the ground. It, it spears it through the heart and it's stuck to that mm. score forever. Um, and I also think that, that the scoring of wines and chasing after scores actually disempowers drinkers and makes them feel somehow unsatisfied and and, uh, and almost impotent because you can never acquire enough high scoring wines. 
And then you trial these high scoring wines and you may not actually like them that much because they may not be to your taste. Yep. So what does that make you that makes you a fool or an idiot? Well, not really. I just feel that, that you know, people are being led down the garden path and, and, and abused really by the scoring system simply through taking it too seriously. I would simply urge everybody to, to use it as a shorthand, to use it as a piece of fun, uh, to use it as, as a, a way into wine if they want, but never, never, never take it too seriously and never think that a 94-point wine is better than an 89-point wine. It isn't. It's just different and different in a different way on a different day. And all of these things are changing all the time. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to defeat the, the scoring system, I know, but I would like to try and communicate the fact that it shouldn't be taken too seriously to people. Well, we, we may not uh, defeat it, but certainly we may uh, cast a different perspective of, of, of those that uh, are, are very um, keen disciples of, of following it uh, to, to every single point. I, I, I think there's been a number of lightning rods recently, you know, with articles that I think Lisa Perotti Brown uh, wrote about uh, a particular article, uh, magazine, you know, where certain, if they had advertised and they would be given perhaps a little more prominence. And there was another article recently um, where the gentleman was pointing out that if there was advertising, uh, they would have uh, perhaps more um, opportunity to, to have certain wines um, given the, the point structure. So I, I think these are, are, are aspects that are slowly, and I, and I believe there will be more and more of that um, type of reporting coming out. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, because I'm sure you've been following those articles as well. Yeah, well, you know, obviously the potential for corruption is enormous. Um, I, I have to say I've never had firsthand experience of it. But what I would say is that sometimes, you know, people have, have sent me samples for review and have said, uh, you know, how much does it cost? <laughs> and I say, well, it doesn't cost anything, of course. You know, I'm, it's, it's a privilege for me to look at things that, yeah. that, you know, to look at samples. And I would never dream of charging anybody, uh, you know, a, a, a sum of money to actually look at or, at or review a wine. Um, and, you know, and that's one way in which corruption can slowly creep into the system, because if you start to pay for a review, um, in the first place, you're putting yourself on a, on a different basis to those who aren't prepared to pay for a review. And in the second place, uh, you, you're entering into a pecuniary relationship with the reviewer, and the reviewer might be predisposed towards uh, looking charitably on, on, on the wine. So that there are a huge number of possibilities for of corruption. Course. Um, but I have to say, I've never come across personally uh, a clear example of corruption in my life. So I can't say that it definitely happens or it definitely doesn't happen. But the well, possibility I, is there. Certainly, certainly. In chapter six of your book, there's a subtitle called The Illuminati of the Bottle. Your description unleashes um, an unbridled truth. Harsh, but true. Scathing, but true. In your opinion, has that type of behavior you described increased, diminished, or remained unchanged over the years? 
So perhaps before you answer that, Andrew, uh, a very uh, quick precy of that particular article for our um, listeners who perhaps haven't read um, that particular article. Sure. Well, that article was about um, the way that once you're sort of slotted into the wine world, once you've signed up as a geek, uh, it, it can completely take over everything and, and mm. nothing else really matters. And it, it, it um, completely dominates everything else to, 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 and, and excludes it from your field of vision. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm really against that. Uh, oh, yes. Partly because I, I'm not naturally a geek myself. I'm an enthusiast. Uh, I love wine uh, for its cultural, whether I love music or film or poetry or anything else, uh, art. Uh, and, and that's the way in which I like to talk about wine. But, but the whole kind of, uh, you know, um, fronting up with, with other geeks in terms of what you've drunk and which vintage is better than the, yes. which other vintage and, you know, which label is better than which other label and... Uh, all of that stuff I find horrid, horrid. really a big turnoff. Um, and I think to go back to our scoring debate, that's, that's something that scoring has actually sort of intensified. It, it's, it, it throws oil on the fire of geekdom. Um, I, don't, I don't want to be too harsh here because no, but you know, I there, are wor there are worse to, things Andrew. you can do with your free time. No, that's At true. Least. But I, I, sorry, I, I, but I think you ought to because uh, I mean, even last night at a particular event I was attending, and the the uh, gentleman, you know, had heard of me and approached me and said, "Oh, you know, I, I believe you know um, something about wine, and you know what wines have you drunk, what vintage have you drunk?" Clearly, clearly, holding up the flag, you know, sort of proudly fluttering in the wind, as 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 you had described earlier. There we are, utterly boring. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was really, but but you know, it, it's a kind of an amusing article as well. I hope. It, oh I, yes. I don't want to be too serious about any of this, um, because wine is essentially something we which which enhances the pleasure that we all have in life. Uh, you know, we're not talking about terrorism or international drug smuggling. Not at all. We're basically talking about an innocent pastime. So I don't want to to overstate the case, but. But I do feel, for me, the great pleasure of wine is is this cultural richness and this way that it's it, it bears a kinship to other arts and uh, it, it can at best be enjoyed in in that kind of way. And and well, we're going to talk about horizontality and verticality and difference in a minute. But but that to me is the really precious thing about wine. And if you get too hooked into to to the whole score system and the hierarchies and all the rest. You, you kind of can almost forget the pleasure altogether. You know, I, I know some wine fans who are, who are just chasing boxes to tick. They're not chasing pleasure anymore. They're chasing boxes to tick. Uh, and that to me is, is a terrible shame. Yes, you, you, you become rather hollow and shallow in, in your pursuit of enjoyment. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned uh, horizontal and vertical. Let, let's touch on that uh, now, shall we, Andrew? You have a strong belief in the horizontal as opposed to the vertical appreciation of wines, the diversity, the difference, as opposed to the quest for the best. Mm. Many would yeah. argue with you on this, and I find it intriguing, and a fellow subscriber of your thoughts as well. So when did 
this idea first materialized for you and how did it develop? Uh, when did it first materialize? Um, I, well, I, I edited something called Witch Wine Guide, which doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore, but mm -hmm. uh, Consumer Association Witch in the UK used to have a wine guide in 1991. And I remember that, you know, I had a chance to write a sort of preface to the beginning of that book. And, and uh, I remember you know, urging wine lovers to, to hunt down excellence in the humble and the obscure, because I, I already felt that that was probably the most interesting thing about wine was chasing down this wonderful, astonishing, almost limitless play of differences oh, yeah. combined with it. That's what's so special about it. And uh, I remember being, being mocked by um, a leading uh, celebrity chef at the time uh, in in a diary column in one of the newspapers, and he's you know, he was saying, oh, you know, what a prat this guy is, you know, get real, we all want the best stuff, of course. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, I've been fighting that battle really ever since. Um, uh, but it's still something I believe very, very strongly in. And, you know, it, it's why I have so many misgivings about the scoring scheme, because, the, and, and, you know, scoring and hierarchy pushes always this vertical approach to wine. You start at the bottom and you work your way up, and in the end, uh, you have enough uh, skill and enough money to to acquire and appreciate the very best. And you know that's the apogee of, of all wine connoisseurship. And to me, it's not like that at all. Uh, it's it's really chasing after the endless differences that that wine can provide and enjoying and savoring those, and uh, learning more about those. And that, to me, is is the biggest cultural richness of all is is to to chase your way through geographies uh, origins places terroir if you like uh, and and producers too because producers are people working in a place they're of their place mm -hmm. they're interpreting their place they're incarnating their place they're giving it voice and you have a chance through roaming through the wine world to discover all this wonderful suite of differences and to appreciate it and to thereby learn that actually hierarchies are generally meaningless. Um, there's no such thing as the best wine. There's the wine you like most on the day uh, or at that time in your life or wherever you happen to be on earth. All of these things are, are, are changing and, and incessantly changing actually. In that sense, um, you know, I, I allude to this several times in the book that they have a lot in common with, with Asian thinking, uh, and particularly with, with Buddhist thinking, actually. Um, and so uh, that to me is really what it's all about. And, and I would express that as horizontality rather than verticality. So I would urge anybody who was just coming to wine to cherish the horizontal and be slightly wary of the vertical. Yes, and um, a question I'm often asked, um, is what is the best wine that I've tried? And I, I, I've said I've yet to try it because um, best is very subjective. And I said, every wine um, has its story, has its richness. Um, and it depends who you're drinking with, when you're drinking, how you're drinking. And uh, on, a, on a frivolous note, who's paying for the wine you know, at the end of it? But uh, it's, it's very true. Um, I think seeking for that uh, 
little hidden gem that that's not on the radar that's that that's that's something that um is is, is very intriguing for me now your article that you that you wrote titled only endure in chapter seven refers to earthquakes more prevalent in the ring of fire you know sort of countries in the pacific region now what are your thoughts from a wine perspective on the climate warming phenomena reflected in the significantly reduced rainfall in europe and other parts of the world and that's been highly um, documented uh, with the lack of rainfall this year yes well this is a, a colossal question um uh, and i should point out that actually earthquakes and climate change are two very different things yes. earthquakes don't have anything to do with climate change but you mentioned uh, drought that that's certainly very significant fires are another hugely significant uh, climate change phenomenon um floods uh wild weather in general uh hail storms have been mm -hmm. a big problem in france over the last decade oh yeah and even even uh spring frost which on the face of it seems counterintuitive that spring frost should be uh, a phenomenon connected with global warming but when you look at the data um increasing uh loss of uh, ice in the northern and the polar regions of the northern hemisphere um is beginning to disrupt the the movement of the polar vortex uh in winter and spring usually it's it's very tight and even under normal conditions but it's increasingly a bit you're getting these bulges of polar air come mm. down into the northern hemisphere big big phenomenon in canada as, as it is in europe and of course if this coincides with much earlier bud burst because of warm winters as it's tending to in europe it can be a catastrophic combination as it has been in 2016 and 2017 and 2021 in europe mm -hmm. so all of these things are beginning to feed together and it's quite simply the biggest challenge that the wine world faces. Um, wine is a kind of uh, litmus test for global warming. Uh, it's very easy to measure the progress of global warming by looking at things like bud burst dates and harvest dates, yes. which have come back at least a month in Europe over the last uh, several decades. Um, and climate change, if left unchecked, will wreck agriculture, all agriculture. Uh, but wine won't be excluded from that. And it will also make life very difficult in all the regions that we're so fond of that produce the great wines, uh, regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne and so on. Now, we, we might, as it happens, be in a kind of Goldilocks period at the moment because the warming that we've had so far has given us some very good vintages, mm -hmm. perhaps with more regularity than we used to have, because in the old days, great vintages tended to be the warmest vintages and they only happened three times a decade. And now they're happening eight or nine times a decade. So we're perhaps in a kind of Goldilocks period where we're actually benefiting in the wine world from that at the moment. Less true, I think, in, in places like California and Australia, where devastating fires and so on have been oh, yes. impacting uh, viticulture. And also where you have less leeway in terms of ripening cycle, um, where you're already out at the limit and, and where you're now getting extraordinary pressure on that limit. But it won't last. Uh, you know, we've already had 1.2 degrees warming since uh, pre-industrial times. And look at all the problems we have with 1.2 degrees. We are going to get 1.5 degrees, whatever happens, for sure. 
And unless we can really do something dramatic in the next decade, we're going to get two degrees or 2.5 degrees getting on towards 2050. And that truly will be catastrophic. So, you know, it's something that, that concerns me enormously, more than anything else, actually, and that I think about an awful lot. And I would urge any concerned wine consumer to think about it too, and to try and do whatever they can in their own lives, small things, medium things, large things, areas for everybody, to, and to, to also talk about it and, and urge those over whom we have influence to act on it, and to vote for those who are prepared to act on it, to change this situation, because it's the gravest situation the world probably has ever faced. Um, you know, we're talking about an anthropogenic extinction episode that's underway at the moment, the like of which has only ever happened five or six times during the history of life on Earth. That is an, a matter of unfathomable seriousness. Um, and as I say, wine is a sort of litmus for all of that. So this is the most important thing we've spoken about, Clinton, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, the consequences are you know, my, many would say on a biblical proportion, but uh, I think, as you said, the consequences will dwarf anything that we've ever encountered. And you're absolutely right there. Um, you know, Andrew, times change, tastes change, and perspectives change. Do you believe your views remain relevant in today's wine world, apart from the uh, you know, global warming? Well, uh, you know, I hope that um, I hope that in some ways my views are avant-garde views. Um, okay. That's partly why I sort of pushed hard to, to get the book out and partly why I picked the pieces I picked, mm -hmm. because I do want people to think very seriously and to question things in the wine world, just as they should think very seriously and question things in, in every other world, too, because that's the only way we'll progress. So, so I hope that far from being dépassé, uh, far, far from being a sort of the last roarings of a dinosaur, um, they, they, might, they might even be uh, the first chirpings of something that uh, has yet to come, but we'll see. Well, I certainly found um, the articles that I read very thought-provoking, and I mentioned that right at the beginning of the interview, and I would invite readers to um, perhaps go through the, um, the contents and the names of the articles first, just to select the ones that uh, they might find rather intriguing, because the way that uh, the book has been set up, um, you allow people to jump around. And, 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 and that, 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 I think, is, is, is very appealing, very appealing indeed. And, now, and it's very important, and I would urge people to read the book in exactly that way. Um, don't start at the beginning and work your way through to the end. Dart all about, um, because that's that's probably the way you'll get most out of it. Yes. Now, how would you like future generations of enophiles to remember you, Andrew? Although you're a long way from that from that point, but still, it's something we all think about. Well, you know, I I would like to have informed and to have inspired. Those are the two things I would like to have done. Um, actually, most of what we've been talking about, Clinton, has been to do with the information side of the book. But perhaps I could also say that, um, 
you know, what I try very hard to do is, oh. is to write well and to write evocatively. I'm Extremely not saying I always well. succeed. Extremely I'm not well. saying I always succeed, but I, I do try hard to do that. And quite a lot of the pieces uh, in the book are not so much informative as, as, as it were, journeys into pleasure. Um, and so I hope uh, that is also something that, that, that people can relate to uh, and can use as inspiration for their own journeying into wine. So if I have informed and inspired, that's enough for me. Well, from what I've read, Andrew, I, I think you have managed to uh, capture one disciple here with, with that, remembering you. Now, your book is a wonderful collection of experiences that you wrote in the past. Now, moving to the future, how do you see the world of wine in the next quarter century from the perspective of a changing population and a makeup of those who do not drink wine for whatever reason? For example, in France, you know, um, as you know, there's been a huge migration. Um, uh, and that's created a, a, a new sector of the community and um, population that don't drink wine at all. Yeah, well, yeah, but that's absolutely fine. Uh, you know, nobody has to drink wine and you're not a lesser human being if you don't drink wine. Not at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I'm completely happy about that. Um, but wine has been with us a long time. You know, we've, we've referred to Homer and uh, Euripides. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it'll be with us for as long as human beings are alive on the earth. The great, the great threat, the great question is that, honestly, human beings may not be alive on the earth for an awful lot longer unless we can address the climate change issue. So that is the thing that presses on us most. I think wine people are, are actually, in general, have grasped that more swiftly than other agricultural sectors. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, some of the work that's been done in the wine world at the moment uh, is, is fantastic and remarkable. I still think we have to meet the biggest challenge of all, which is to do with wine packaging and glass and heavy glass bottles and all glass bottles. Uh, it would be great if we could find a different way of, of packaging wine that, that served wine well, but that would cost the climate a bit less. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of work in that field in the future. And after that, um, it, it's a question of wine growers everywhere meeting the challenges that the climate is going to throw at them, and they will become increasingly severe. I think every wine grower is actually aware of that. Um, and we simply, we simply don't know how that's going to go. Uh, but I'm sure that unless, unless we can accelerate in our response to global warming very rapidly over the next decade, uh, those who are still alive, I probably won't be, in 30 or 40 years uh, are going to see stark and dramatic developments that are not welcome at all. So uh, I, once again, I would urge everybody to take this problem enormously seriously and to do everything they can in their own lives mm -hmm. to help with the decarbonization of our atmosphere. I think that is happening already with uh, quite a number of wine producers in terms of just a very simple example of the weight of the bottles. You know, mm. one tends to think of, oh, if it's a heavier weighted bottle without the contents, must be a, more of a superior quality wine inside. That's changing now. Uh, and, and that movement is uh, gathering uh, support. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, 
On another note, Andrew, if you and I, and I do sincerely hope, <clears throat> excuse me, this becomes a reality and not just a hope, have dinner together, mm. what would be your choice for a four-course meal and wine pairing for us? <laughs> Crikey. Um, well, we can we can come up with some nice things, I'm sure. I don't know what you like to eat, Clinton. Uh, that's the first thing. I, I uh, eat everything. Yeah. You eat everything. Okay, well, um, we'd certainly start with some sparkling wine because sparkling wine is wonderful to start with. Um, obviously, champagne is, is fantastic, but so is English sparkling wine. Yes. And so are other sparkling wines like uh, Carver. One of the pieces in the book actually is about uh, a great wine, a sparkling wine made down in Catalonia. Uh, and one of the things I believe quite strongly is that, you know, the, the success of Champagne has been so dramatic um, that we tend to forget that there are other ways of making sparkling wine in other climates. That's right. And my, uh, my analogy for this is, is Gothic architecture versus Romanesque architecture. Champagne is Gothic architecture, but it's not the only sort of architecture. There is also a Romanesque architecture, and I think uh, some of the wines, uh, sparkling wines that are made in, in, uh, in Catalonia uh, are absolutely magnificent examples of that too. So something somewhere in there we'll find uh, that, that'll be our first okay. one. Okay. Um, uh, then we're going to probably eat some fish or something out of the sea. Okay. Uh, and a wine I'm particularly fond of uh, since I've just been up in the Loire Valley is Savignere, an unusual wine, not, mm. not, not a wine that many people have often encountered. Uh, wonderful wine made of Chenin Blanc, dry white wine. To me, it, it, it's a perfect uh, food partner as white burgundy can be. Tend, people tend to think first of white burgundy, but Savignier can be every bit as good. So I'd love us to have a, a wonderful bottle of Savignier. Yes, I do like Chenin Blanc. Uh -huh. Yeah, and then, uh, and then we're probably going to eat something substantial for our main course. Uh, I, I won't put any more flesh on it than that because um, it tastes very in that respect too. But uh, I, I would love to, to offer you a, a great Languedoc Red at that point, uh, Clinton, because I've lived in the Languedoc now for, for 12 years, uh, got to know okay. it very well. Um, and uh, I'd love to pick out a wonderful wine from Terrasse du Lazac or Saint-Chignon, or okay. even Pic Saint-Loup, which is, uh, I can cycle to Pic Saint-Loup from where I live. So something from one of those three appellations for our main course. And then of course, we're going to have a bottle of very young vintage port. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to drink with the Valkyries and we'll put some Wagner on the on the on the on Spotify and enjoy that together and uh, blow our minds in that way. <laughs> splendid, splendid. <laughs> what, what, what a wonderful description I think of would be a very memorable evening. And I might hold you to that, Andrew, when I when I Please come do. to France next time. Wonderful, wonderful. So my last question, Andrew, for this exceptional interview that that uh, you've been so kind to um, grant us actually before I get to that would you like to share with uh, our audience a little bit more about the book uh, where it's available and, um, and just tell us a little bit more about it sure sure well you know it was published in the, at the beginning of September it's uh, it's available in all the usual places I'm sure it's reaching its way to bookstores now obviously you can buy copies online uh, you can even buy copies direct from the publisher if you want, Académie du Vin uh, Publishing. If you Google that, uh, it'll come up. Um, and 
you know, we've, we've given it a fairly good description during our conversation, but it is, it is a collection of pieces I've written about wine over the last uh, 15, 17 years, um, collection of, of uh, great diversity, but not too much geekiness and not too much uh, ephemerality. They're, they're the, the pieces I picked out were picked out to be as enduring as possible and to be as, uh, not, not to, uh, as it were, be superseded very quickly. So I hope they are sort of perennial truths about wine or as far as we can get to it. So yes, there we are. That's the book. Go out and buy it um, if, you, if you like the sound of it and I hope you enjoy it. And please write to me if you wish. I'm always happy to communicate with readers. Excellent, excellent. Mm -mm. So Andrew, my last question. What advice would you give a new wine enthusiast when it comes to beginning their personal wine adventure? Well, it, it would be uh, to, to taste and to read together. Uh, that will take you quite a long way. If you then have a chance to travel, that will make the journey all the richer. But keep doing those things, tasting, reading, traveling, uh, and beware of hierarchies, beware of verticality, pursue the beautiful dif difference of wine uh, as, as far as you can, and you'll have a lifelong pleasure, I'm sure. That's uh, absolutely the way that I've enjoyed wine over the last uh, 50 years or so, uh, and, and truly, I think it's, it's the best way. So that would be my advice. Andrew Jefford, thank you very much for being on the Apoisi Wine Buzz. It's been a real pleasure, and we wish you great success uh, in your latest book. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. thank you, Clinton. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Wine Buzz Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave a review or share it with a friend. Apwazi is an online wine and spirit institution dedicated to promoting culture and diversity through the world of education. If you're looking to get started, we have a free online course that we are giving out to all our listeners. For more information, head to apwazi.com. That's A-P-W-A-S-I.com.